guess what, everyone? The days are getting longer! So in honor of that, today's episode is all about light. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. Before we get into the interview, I'm going to give y'all a quick refresher on atoms, which might seem a little off track from the topic of light, but just stick with me on this one. Atoms are tiny bits that make up you, me, and everything else in this universe. We have hydrogen atoms in water, oxygen atoms in our air, and you may be wearing some silver or gold atoms right now. Each atom is made up of protons and neutrons in the center, and then it has electrons layered around that center. These layers of electrons are called states, and while an electron can move around, they also have a home state. If electrons were human-sized and living my life, I could say that they like to travel to Maine or California, but will eventually come back to Washington. In our universe, we have the light that we do because we have electrons. Today we have Dr. Brad Moser, who was my physics teacher for three years in college and is a fellow podcaster and does other really cool things. So would you like to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, so I teach, I teach physics by day, by night. I, I make a podcast now called Physics Alive. And on days that I can escape, I love to climb mountains. I definitely have this fever that overcame me in the last few years where I just need to get out as much as I can and climb mountains. And I always say, I wanna make sure I keep having a job where I can secretly escape during the week and climb a mountain. And that can sometimes happen in education. I hope none of my bosses are listening. <laughs> yeah, why did you take a sick day? Oh, well. Yeah, oh, um, no, no reason. Yeah. I was sick. I was sick yeah. of being inside. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I do yoga. And I actually got yoga teacher certified in 2012. And I haven't done much with that of late, but there's sort of a, an itch coming back for that too. So I have a lot of projects that are, that are always going on. So what exactly is light? Light is a wave. Asterix. The asterisk is that light is also a particle. Those particles are called photons, but for the most part, we'll be sticking with the light is a wave definition in this episode. But light is a wave. I, I want to start by saying, think of, a, think of a slinky. You take a slinky, you stretch it out, and you shake one end of it, and you get a wave pulse that propagates down the slinky. In the case of the slinky wave, there is a, a medium that is moving the slinky itself. With an ocean wave, it's the water that is that is waving. With light, it's, it's actually an electric field in one direction and a magnetic field that's perpendicular to that. Now, that doesn't really mean anything to anybody. Uh, maybe to the physicists, it kind of makes some sort of sense. But how, it's like, where are these fields coming from? What is that all about? Okay, so the way I like to talk about that is grab an electron. If you can somehow grab one of these little particle doohickeys, grab it and start shaking it back and forth vigorously. Out is going to pop an electromagnetic wave. Basically, the faster you shake it, the higher the frequency of that light wave. So you're, when you shake the electron, that's kind of like your slinky that's oscillating back and forth. And then that ripples out through space and it can then be detected later on. And, and we'll talk about vision a little bit later, I think. But basically, once that oscillating electric field gets to your eye, that energy gets released into your eye and does some fun stuff, and all of a sudden we can see. 
So that, that's one way we can think of it. We can shake an electron around. When you shake an electron fast, you make light that is a little bit more blue, has more energy. If you shake it slowly, you make it a little bit more red, has a little less energy. So we have the kind of light that comes from wiggling electrons. But what happens when that electron gets the travel bug? And instead of having a dance party in its house for all of 2020, I swear I'm still talking about electrons, it decides to go on a trip to a different state. The other way we can talk about where light comes from is... You take an atom that has electrons, you hit it with some energy that causes an electron to be excited to a higher state. And then when it drops down to lower states, it emits a photon and that is light that we see. So those are kind of two of the main ways that we think about how light is produced. But there's sort of an additional piece called black body radiation. The general idea is the higher the temperature of an object, the, the different color it will glow. So something simple to think about is you have a, a stovetop burner and you turn that on and after it warms up, you see that it's glowing red. So basically the fact that this is heated to a specific temperature means there's some wavelength that's emitted. That's, that's a little bit more red. Uh, we can also think of this in terms of flames. If we, we have a candle, the flame is a little bit more red or yellow, uh, but then we can also have something like a propane torch and that's going to look more blue because it turns out that that heat is a bit, well, it's a bit hotter. So it's now going to emit in more of a blue color instead. That was my short answer. <laughs> Our own eyeballs pick up visible light. So that's Roji Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. How does visible light translate into the colors that we see? So our vision, our, as in organisms that were alive on the planet Earth a long, long time ago. From what I understand, our earliest vision was sort of just picking up lights and darks. Like there was no color vision. It was just sort of seeing different shades of lightness and darkness. And then slowly over time, organisms evolved to start seeing shapes to be able to pick up color. And it's going to evolve around the peak wavelengths of our star. And the peak wavelength of our star is around that red, orange, yellow, blue part of light, which is why we see the sun as yellow. While it does emit some infrared and ultraviolet, which are the two kinds of light bookending our colored light, there isn't much of those lights reaching the surface of the Earth. So the reason we see the colors we do is because the colors that we see are the ones that are the strongest. So infrared and ultraviolet, which we can't see, and beyond infrared and beyond ultraviolet, those are all there, but they are much lower in intensity than these so-called visible colors that are important to us simply because we were born on a planet that was close to what we call a yellow star, and those were the peak wavelengths. And in fact, there are other wavelengths to see. So, so birds, they're fun. They can see ultraviolet. Snakes, I believe, can see infrared. So there are other wavelengths to see that evolution has helped those animals to see those. But it, I, I get fascinated by this because I think if we can find life on other planets, planets that have blue or red stars, and they have visual structures, it's like, what's, what's that going to look like? Living on a blue star would be tough because there is a whole lot of ultraviolet radiation. Mm -hmm. UV is good because it helps to cause genetic mutations, which leads to evolution. Yay. Yay. Too much UV, it just kills you. Uh, we're all just cancer and die. Really, so, really bad sunburns. Yeah, that would kind of shortcut the whole evolution uh, process. So blue stars, probably not. Red stars, though, that's a good place for looking for life, as well as the yellow stars. But yeah, it makes me think, what if we visited one of those places? Well, it would look more red to us if it was a red star. But to the beings who evolved there, I mean, we can't even imagine what that would look like because they're going to be shifted so that red is their peak. They're going to see what we call infrared. They're not going to see blue. 
anyway, we see what we see is just simply because that's what's there. It, it, it didn't make sense for us to look at deep infrared because there wasn't much light there. So how do we see light from the sun or light bulb comes down yeah. and it bounces off an object. So most of what we see color-wise is pigments. So we can think of pigments like melanin, more of a brown color. We can think of a pigment like chlorophyll, which we see as green. So what's happening is in something that's green, the blue and the red light that is falling on it get absorbed. And the green light is what gets reflected. So the light comes in and all of that visible light that comes to our eyes then can be absorbed by the cones in the eye, which respond to the red, green, and blue parts of the spectrum. So humans have three cones. Birds have a fourth cone that's sensitive to UV. So that's how they pick up on the UV. Butterflies have five. So they have the red, blue, and green that we do. They have the UV and they also have an additional one that's helpful for distinguishing much smaller differences between colors. So butterflies can more easily see as you go from say blue to a green, they can catch those differences a little bit better. And then there's the old mantis shrimp, which has 16. What? Yeah. So the three visible, maybe. Uh, UV, and apparently they have a whole bunch of them related to polarization, which is another feature of light, which I don't really want to talk about that much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, mantis shrimp have just wild and crazy vision. And there's some cool resources out there. You can see that they, they've made a camera that's attempting to view the undersea world like the mantis shrimp sees it in terms of polarization. And it's, it's a pretty wild spectacle. So light's bouncing off of these pigments, either absorbed or reflects. But there are some animals that make use of what's called structural color. Again, birds and butterflies tend to be a good example among others. So blue is a hard pigment to make in nature. You don't see many natural blues. So bluebirds, they mostly have brown pigment. Okay. So why do they appear blue? Well, it turns out the structure of their feathers allows them to appear blue to us. So there's air pockets and feather structure which scatter blue light while absorbing other colors. Basically, it's just like the reason we see the sky is blue. Hmm. So light coming into the Earth's atmosphere gets scattered a lot by the air molecules and the blue light scatters a lot while the, the reds and yellows and greens don't get scattered quite as much. So that, that kind of comes down to the ground and gets absorbed, but the blue light gets scattered up in the sky. And so when we look up, we are seeing the blue light that is scattering down to our eyes the same thing that's happening with the bluebird's feathers. The light is coming in. It scatters off of different air pockets and feather structure. And then it's the blue that preferentially gets scattered back out to our eyes while the rest of the colors get absorbed. And that's just one way we get structural color. Another way is thin film interference. So think of a soap bubble or oil on your driveway. When you see a bubble or oil on the driveway, you can see some colors. You can usually pick up some, it looks kind of like pinks and greens. So that's not coming from any pigment. Bubbles are transparent. We shouldn't be able to see anything at all. But what's happening is the bubble has a thickness to it. Light comes in and it bounces off the top surface. But some of that light also passes into this somewhat transparent material. And then it bounces off the back surface and back up as well. So now you have light from both the front and the back surface bouncing back towards your eye. If those two waves are in phase with each other, if they're lined up with each other, it will enhance that color so that you preferentially see that. Whereas other colors, it will basically cancel them out. And so okay. the thickness of this film actually determines which wavelengths are going to be the ones that get enhanced. 
animals are unknowingly using this. <laughs> so evolution <laughs> has led uh, once again to the structural materials. So birds and butterflies, again, uh, they have air layers that are between structures of the feather. So basically the feather structures will maybe be these, these alternating little grading sorts of things, these little microstructures that have a pocket of air between them. And so light will reflect off the tops and bottoms of these little layers. And so the colors that you see in a bird, like say maybe the, the glorious iridescence of a hummingbird or the blue morpho butterfly, these have structural colors where it's based on not a pigment, but on that structure that is showing us the, the colors that we see. And we're trying to make technology based on that. So there's, uh, there's a field called biomimicry. We'll actually be talking to somebody for my podcast for that in January, all about biomimicry. But it's basically looking at nature and being inspired by what evolution has effectively figured out and using that to help solve human problems that we have. So we're using this idea of structural color in technologies such as screens, where instead of having pixels have either a red green or blue element to it. Instead, you can actually have the pixels have basically a top layer and a bottom layer. And electronically, the, the thickness of that layer can change. And in changing that thickness, you get a particular color. So now you can tune each pixel very, very precisely just based on changing the, the thickness of it. So rainbows, great example of visible light. What is going on with a rainbow? Rainbows. Oh, I love rainbows. So there are people that say, well, these things in nature are so beautiful. If, you, if you're thinking about the physics all the time, it ruins it. Let me tell you, when I'm observing these phenomena, I am not thinking about the physics. Well, okay, I'm thinking about the physics a little bit, but I would say it is enhancing my enjoyment of it. There's sort of like the awe and then, whoa, the physics that makes this is wow. And then, ah, oh, wow, look at that. Oh, and then the physics of that is wow. This is why I took all of your classes. <laughs> <laughs> so... And talking about structural color, that was, that was interference. When we talk about rainbows, we have to get more into refraction. So it's a different way to break white light into different colors. Basically, light entering a material, it will change its speed a little bit and will change its direction. So a rainbow we get from, it's actually a combination of refraction and reflection. So usually the sun is behind me, the sun is passing over my head, and it's then going through rain that might be in the distance. So you'll often note that rainbows tend to happen sort of on the tail end of rain a lot, or maybe when it's not even raining where you are, but it's raining somewhere in the distance. So the light is behind you, it passes over you, we'll say, and then when it reaches a raindrop, as a light ray enters this round raindrop, it will refract into the raindrop. And then it's going to reflect off the backside of the raindrop. So just like the thin film, you can have reflections off of a front side and a backside of a material. Light enters the raindrop, refracts and bends a little bit. That refraction splits it into different colors. So now the white light is beginning to split into reds, greens, blues. It bounces off the backside of the raindrop and it comes out the front side again, refracting a little bit more, spreading the color out that much more. So now the colors have been spread and basically, depending on the height of the raindrop in the sky, we're going to get a different color from raindrops that are higher in the sky and another different color from raindrops lower in the sky because their angles that they are exiting the raindrop are different. And that results in this spread of color that we see. And then, of course, there's the double rainbow. For the double rainbow, there are two reflections that are happening inside. So light is coming into that raindrop at a slightly different angle, it's entering, 
it's reflecting inside twice and coming out at a different angle. But again, the refraction part is leading to the splitting of light into different colors. And then the reflection part is bringing it back to our eyes. Sunsets are also a great visible light thing that's happening. What has been your favorite sunrise or sunset that you've ever seen? I always have loved the main sunrises. And I don't know if they're they're different than other places. They're, they're probably not. Maybe I've just seen more of them there. But just the brilliant reds and oranges that you get in the sky, which, okay, got to go back to physics. Uh, because now light, it's kind of coming through at a sharper angle to us. So that blue light scattering that happens overhead, well, now all the blue is scattered so much, it doesn't even make it to our eyes. It's only the oranges and reds and yellows that are sort of left over at that point when, when the, the sun is grazing the atmosphere, such as at sunrises and sunsets. So yeah, I've always loved main sunrises. Moonrises, I think are even more awesome. Again, because of those atmospheric effects, when that moon rises right over the horizon, it can appear so blood red because we're getting white light reflecting off of the surface of, of the moon from the sun and everything else gets scattered away. And now it's just the red that's left. Those are always so cool to see. I love moonrises. Definitely the best moonrises I've ever seen. I've also been in Maine. Do you have any other awesome adventures or memories where cool light events stand out? So I got to come back to the moon again, <laughs> the moon halo. The first time I, I, I must've seen them when I was younger, but there was, there was just a time in my life in it was like 2008 or so where I was going through a tough time. And I, you know, I went out late at night to do one of those labyrinths that you can walk, that you can walk through, kind of weave your way through. It's, it's, it's a meditative structure that's set up. And that night there happened to be a moon halo. It's, it usually happens in colder temperatures because there's ice crystals in the air. And it's basically a rainbow, but for the moon. So you have the moonlight passing through these ice crystals and the light is refracted through these crystals such that you only see the light coming from that refraction at a specific, it's something like around 30 degree angle. And so you see this huge halo around the moon that's based on this, this ice crystal refraction. And it's just, it's just amazing to look at. Like sometimes it can be kind of diffuse, but there are some nights when it's, when it's like really cold and really clear. And, and then it's just, it's just like this, this sharp ring, some other ones. So I, I had a, I had a week in Banff national park in Canada. So cool. And first of all, one of the, one of the times I saw a rainbow from the top of a mountain, I have a picture of it that I'm, that I'm going to send you. It was a double rainbow. The lower part of the rainbow was actually too low for me to see from where I was on the mountain. So that was one cool thing, but I think even cooler, and you're really going to appreciate this is the blue green lake waters that are in the mountains. And that's all about glaciers. Yeah. <laughs> in lakes that are nearby glaciers, you'll have water that is so such as this blue green turquoise color. And basically these glaciers are grinding up the rock. And so now when the glacier melts, all of this rock and gravel and silt are going to flow down into this lake and most of it settles on the bottom. But there's this fine sort of layer of small particle rock that's kind of like almost like baking flour that remains suspended in the water. So now when the light from the sun is coming down, this rock flower absorbs most of the colors but it scatters blue and green a little bit more. So kind of just like the air molecules in the sky, these, rock, these tiny, tiny rock particles in the water are more preferentially scattering blues and greens. And so that's the color that comes to our eyes. 
Glaciers have so many cool physics involved with them, and if you want to hear more about it, you can check out the podcast episode I did on Physics Alive. Yeah, I have a podcast called Physics Alive, and it's largely going to be targeted towards teachers and educators kind of talking about cool things that we can do in the physics classroom. Along the way, I'm also going to be talking to students, such as Kate. I talked yes. to you for an episode a few weeks ago, <laughs> and I want to be able to talk with folks who are doing really interesting physics things that are outside of what are in the normal physics textbooks. So what are topics that could bring physics alive? You know, something like the mantis shrimp and how it sees and things like rock flower in the water uh, showing off its cool colors and scattering and structural color. So you can find Physics Alive where regular podcasts are released. I also have a website, physicsalive.com. All sorts of social media. I think Twitter is the one I'm really landing on. You can find me at Physics Alive on Twitter. It seems to be where a lot of the educators are, but I'm trying to keep a, a presence on, on Facebook and Instagram as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, this was great. I mean, it really, light is one of my favorite topics. It's one of mine as well. As a scientist and an artist, I definitely think about it a lot. So thanks for listening along and hopefully learning a tidbit or two about how light works in your own life. And now for the episode recap. Light can happen in a couple different ways. An electron can put on some dance music and shake around a little, or it can travel up to a different state and then emit light when it drops back down from that higher level. Objects at different temperatures emit different colors of light as well, like stovetops, both propane and electric, or even objects as big as our sun and other stars. The light that we know and love is what we call the visible light spectrum, because we can see it. Those are the red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet wavelengths of light. And humans can see that light because that's primarily what our sun emits. So our vision has evolved around those common wavelengths. When we see color, we're seeing the light that doesn't get absorbed by an object. Many objects and animals have pigments that send that colorful light back to our eyes. But sometimes we see a specific color because the light hits different materials and bounces around a little bit. With bubbles or oil slicks, the light is hitting the front and the back side of the material, and then those light waves can either combine or cancel each other out. With rainbows, that double layer effect is also happening, but with the added bonus of the raindrops splitting sunlight into its different colors as well. Fun light phenomenon can be seen everywhere, whether it's a sunrise, a moon halo, or even just a pretty color of house paint. So even if you aren't getting outside much in these darker days of the year, don't worry, there's still science to go forth and find from the comfort of the couch. You can learn more about mantis shrimp vision in Samuel Powell's 2018 paper, Bio-Inspired Polarization Vision Enables Underwater Geolocalization. And a huge thanks to my newest patrons, my mom and my Uncle Rick. If you like listening to this podcast and want to support its creation, you can find me on patreon.com forward slash go forth and science. Thanks for listening and enjoy that increasing daylight.